Hey y'all, welcome back for part two of three of Jody Arias with True Crime Cat Lawyer. If you cannot wait for episode three, head over to our Patreon. All three episodes are there. Enjoy. So one of the first witnesses that testified for the prosecution was Marie Hall, who we better know as Mimi. And she was one of the people that found Travis's body on June 9th. And so part of her testimony was about that. Part of her testimony was also, I think, kind of laying the framework for or the background for Mormonism because it was going to come up so much in trial because that was such a key part of both cases, I think, that just background of what that religion was. So I think it was important for them to have Mimi come and testify. Very much somebody you would want to kind of present this testimony because she, it's almost like what the defense was trying to do with Jody. Mimi kind of embodied that. She was just this, you know, plain Jane girl next door. And so she testified at trial that she actually went on three dates with Travis and he had invited her on the infamous Cancun trip. Again, they were just going to go as friends. That was the only reason that she agreed to go because she talked about him being more interested in her than she was in him. She really didn't feel any sparks with him. So she didn't really want the relationship to progress anywhere. So she went to Travis's house on the ninth. She testified that the reason she did that was because she hadn't heard from Travis and they were supposed to leave for Cancun on the 10th. And so that's actually why she was at the house on the 9th. She was kind of confused, you know, hey, we're supposed to be leaving. I haven't heard from him. This is really weird, that kind of a thing. And she did say, we'll hear this a lot. You guys kind of brought it up earlier. Travis never showed any sign of a temper to her. He did mention to her that he had a stalker, which presumably at the time he was referring to Jody. Wow. So thank you for clarifying that because, you know, details for this case are so hard because it's convoluted sometimes. Like you get conflicting information, even on news sources. Like, so how many people show it was like Mimi, Michelle, Dallin, Dave, and then the, the useless, the useless roommate, Zach. Okay. Do we want to even talk about the roommate who's Travis's was in the house for five days and the guy didn't even know. Yeah, that's all I really like took about him was like how absurd that was to me because I'm going to talk about it in just a second. But Travis was already in the process of decomposition. And obviously, I've never smelled that myself. I'm not a medical examiner or a coroner or anything. But just based on everything I read about and know about, I would think if you're in that process, like you have to smell something. Because Mimi also testified to smelling that when she got into the house. I mean, did he not leave the house and it was like a nose blind situation? I mean, possibly. So this is what I read. Okay. Is that when they, when they approached the house, like she said, like you said, at least said they had to, they didn't have a key. So they had to use, like they called someone, they got the keypad, whatever they went in through the garage, but they heard Napoleon barking. From the outside of the house. So not only is this guy just completely oblivious, he's not even taking care of the dog, but also they get inside the door. They they had to knock on his door because they had to follow the sound of music because they heard this loud music coming from the roommate's room. So to your point, Amanda, no, he minded his fucking business. 
he is actually the perfect roommate if you're one of those people that wants you know what i mean like just a chill roommate i was in about this case. to say he's the best roommate ever 100 unless you die yes <laughs> spot on but to your point they were like he was like yeah i thought i smelled something kind of weird in the house what do you mean you thought you smelled something weird it also like you said okay you're you're smelling something weird but i've got to think that napoleon's making some kind of ruckus if he hasn't been let out to go to the bathroom like he hasn't been fed i don't know about you but like my animals freak out when i'm here and they're hungry yeah <laughs> exactly exactly right it just it just blows my mind and yes. how did he not hear the gunshot well so that's going to come up later too apparently they were alone that day and so oh, none of the roommates okay. were there so that part i can i can excuse but i don't know if you smell something funny maybe you should check it out <laughs> yeah that should be somebody's new sticker if you smell something funny you should check it out i watched his entire direct and cross and i've never actually listened to testimony from a medical examiner and I didn't expect it to be so rough, but there were definitely parts that made my stomach so queasy, especially when the video would pan to the photos that they were showing both the jury and Dr. Horn, you know, the photos that they had taken during the autopsy and all of that. So I felt so bad because I know for sure two of Travis's sisters and one of his brothers were watching the trial. I don't know if other people were there, but they were obviously visibly upset when we they were going through these horrendous things that have been done to their brother and so i really felt for them from what i watched they were there every day of the trial and i commend them because like i said i only watched like eight to ten hours and it was just exhausting i actually found dr horn to be an incredible witness um you know he was well prepared he wasn't combative and he was basically everything you would want in a perfect witness essentially you know i think he said something like he'd done over six thousand autopsies in his career and so obviously he's somebody that's well versed in testifying and well versed in doing autopsies the most annoying part of his testimony didn't even have to do with him. It was our good old friend Jody. <laughs> because when, so there were times in the trial where they wouldn't show certain photos on screen. So, like, they, the prosecution would be showing the jury and Dr. Horn the pictures, but the camera didn't show us as the viewer those pictures. So when they did that, they would pan over to the defense table and you could see that Jody was crying and she was hiding behind her hair and she kept her head down and she was very upset when they showed x-rays or photos, you know, of the various autopsy to the jury. <laughs> and I was just like, bitch, if you can't handle hearing about this, maybe you shouldn't have fucking done it. Like I said, it was just, it was so frustrating to watch someone cry and try to paint this picture. I'm so sad that I did this, that kind of thing. I mean, you did it the first time. Why can't you look at a picture of it the second time? I don't get it. <laughs> hate her. <laughs> yeah, she's awful. She's just the worst. The fucking worst. 
But that was the moment she like started crying was when these x-rays were shown. You did this to him. So (laughs) this is your, this is your doing. This is your work. So we wouldn't be here if it weren't for you. You know who her bestie could be? Hmm. Amanda Lewis. Oh yeah. That would be a good one. So I'm going to limit how much I talk about the medical examiner's testimony, just because, like I said, it was pretty graphic and we have kind of already discussed his injuries. But basically, Travis's body was kind of in the middle stage of decomposition, as Dr. Horn referred to it. And he said the process of mummification had already begun. So there were things that he couldn't necessarily be completely definitive about because the mummification process, particularly in the hands, can cause things to look different in the body. He, of course, talked about the neck slice as well as the gunshot wound to the head. And I believe at trial, he testified about 27 stab wounds, but I did read in different reports that it was between 27 and 29, but I'm pretty sure at trial he said 27. There were nine to the chest, and then I believe the rest were in the back. So the defense, when they cross-examined him, really focused on the things he wasn't able to determine in his autopsy. And one of those things was the range of fire from which the gun was shot. So he basically testified he didn't find any stippling. And so that he sort of said, you know, even though there wasn't evidence necessarily of stippling, it also, again, was hard to be definitive about certain things because of the decomposition process and how that affects things. And so I personally thought he did a really good job talking about the decomposition process. Like as difficult as that is to hear, I think it's important to recognize where the limitations are, but also recognize this man is in the best position to kind of tell us what he can about the different injuries. The defense attorney was trying to get him to essentially say that Travis wasn't shot in the head, meaning the brain part of the head. And so he did testify, you know, he was shot kind of right above the right eyebrow. And the defense attorney was trying to say, well, you know, he wasn't actually shot into the skull cavity because he was shot above the eyebrow. And Dr. Horn said, well, no, when it goes through, like as an adult, when your brain's fully formed, your brain takes up pretty much the entire skull cavity. And so when you shoot kind of anywhere in the head, it has to go through the brain because that's what's in your skull. It's inside your head. It's literally like, okay, so what, what, what the, so the, what the argument was is that it wouldn't have passed through the brain because the brain is so decomped at this point that they couldn't tell if it actually passed through the brain. Yeah. So they were also trying to say that they couldn't tell that it traveled through the brain because of the decomp. So they couldn't actually look at the brain. But they were also trying to argue that because it didn't go through the brain, Travis was still up and walking around and still, you know, fighting, attacking. Okay. Okay. So that makes more sense. My question is, did they say if the entry wound was front facing or did did was he shot from behind because when you mentioned most of the, the stab wounds were from behind that to me doesn't feel self-defensey yeah at that so point. so there's a couple things so first the shot was in the front it kind of went through his uh, right above his right eyebrow and because of the way it was traveling it ended up in his left cheek but he talked about not 
the cheek itself, kind of like right where the cheekbone is, is where it kind of stopped. And so they talked about that and kind of the trajectory of where it would go. And then as far as the stab wounds, they also talked about how those, whether they were shallow or deep and kind of the trajectory of the stabbing as well. And one of the things that they kind of talked about was that, first of all, they were shallow. They didn't break through any bone. And so there was some kind of argument about the force applied. And I think what the defense attorney was trying to get at was that this wasn't like a like a rage incident where you're just like stabbing somebody wildly. What she was trying to argue was that it was almost like Travis was kind of on top of Jody and she was reaching around and stabbing him in the back. Got it. So he's on top of her, holding her down allegedly or whatever, trying to get her to stop because he's trying to hurt her. And so Jody is now kind of in a bear hug situation on the ground, like taking a knife and like stabbing wildly, like blindly stabbing him, essentially. Correct. Okay. Katie, I have a question for you. Somebody's on top of you attacking you. You have a knife. Where are you going to stab them? I mean, everywhere. (laughs) Right? I mean, I think my instinct would be if you're on top of me to like stab you in the gut or like, you know, wherever or in your eye. Yeah. Yeah. Like in front of you. Yeah. Yeah. To get you off, inflict the most amount of damage immediately to get Mm -hmm. you off of me. Or you can get away. Right. Right. Like, or even like the head, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. (sighs) Yeah. So it's, it's good that you picked up on that because we'll also talk about the stabbing and kind of the sequence of the shot, the neck cut and the backstabbings a little bit later when Jody testifies. So yeah, hang on to that. So of course, you know, there's a bunch of other people that testified and I'm just kind of going to briefly talk about the highlights. There was a fingerprint examiner that testified about the palm prints that we talked about in the hallway. She talked about the print matching Jody's as well as finding the DNA that matched Jody's. The forensic scientist testified about a 25 caliber bullet casing being found in a pool of congealed blood, which meant that Travis had been stabbed and his throat had been slit before he was shot. And again, important to note because it will come back when Jody testifies about kind of the sequence of what happened. Detective Esteban Flores was the lead detective on the case. He's the one that spoke with Jody on the phone. He did the interrogation. He's like the big detective on the case. And he took this stand quite a few times. He actually sat next to Juan Martinez throughout the trial. So he was almost like in the second chair position, but obviously he wasn't a lawyer. So he testified about the various conversations he'd had with Jody, as well as the interrogation that he conducted. And of course, those interrogation tapes were also played for the jury. I didn't get a lot into the interrogation tapes. There was just kind of a lot there. But I know that some of the highlights were her doing a handstand at one point and singing. And at one point, she's rifling through the trash in the room. All very bizarre behavior, generally. (laughs) but very bizarre behavior when you're in an interrogation room being questioned about murdering your ex-boyfriend yeah i've seen some of this Uh, she sings silent night she sings um god what was the other song that she sings in there another one and 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 you're just like oh dido she sings a dido song yes down with the ship girl of all the songs to pick 
you're picking a stalker ass song. Of course you pick that song. Like you can't write this. This is cannot be written by a TV show. It's just too much. It's just, I just don't understand why she actually was pretty meticulous when she planned it. Um, I'll give her that. Like she didn't do bad. She could have done better, but I'm glad she got caught. You know what I mean? But the point is, but in, but I'm surprised she didn't think about that. You know, maybe she was just so overly confident that she would get, get off that she's like, I don't have to worry about this. Like, why do I care? And I will say, I think that that might be part of it. She talked about the interview that she did with Inside Edition back in 2008, kind of right after she got arrested. And at that interview, she said something along the lines of, no jury is going to convict me. I'm you know, going to be found innocent or whatever. And I'll talk about that with her testimony. But one of the things that makes me think of is that if she was planning to go through with her suicide, like she talks about later, she might not have cared how she looked in an interrogation because she never really expected the case to go forward. Yeah, that makes sense. But I mean, she also could just be cuckoo and this is part of the show. Yeah. <laughs> or she was setting up a insanity defense. If you look cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs in the interrogation room. Good idea. Very good point. Didn't think about that. Yeah, I was also going to mention that too, or even just setting up her kind of borderline personality disorder that she talks about later or is kind of brought up later. That could also be playing into that as well. Mm -hmm. So the prosecution brought Ryan Burns to the stand and you guys kind of talked about him. You know, he was kind of sort of involved with Jody. When he gets on the stand, he talks about, you know, he was supposed to Jody was supposed to come visit him in Utah and she showed up late. I think we talked about a day late. And so according to him, Jody said that she had been in a traffic stop with police and that's why she showed up late. This traffic stop, by the way, is hysterical to me. She basically says later when she testifies that she was stopped by the police because one of her license plates was upside down. What? <laughs> I mean, okay, not a broken tail light, not a, I was going over the speed limit. My license plate was upside down, which means you had to have placed your license plate upside down. And, and correct me here, wasn't she driving around a rental car at this point, even to go visit Ryan? Yeah. So is the argument that it was the rental company that put it on upside down and she just didn't even fucking notice? I think her argument was that like some kids had pulled a prank on her. And she didn't realize that it was upside down. What's no. the point? <laughs> I know exactly. Like she's trying, to, she thinks she's smarter than she is clearly. And also she's trying to weave this web of this is what actually happened. Pay attention. But she's not good at it. I mean, she's, a, she's good at manipulating people because like you saw her versus the prosecutor. What's his name? Martinez. And damn, toe to toe, baby. I mean, but when it comes to concocting stories, leave it to Casey Anthony. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> so they had another detective testify about receipts that were found in Jody's grandparents' home in a shoebox. And that kind of provided the police with a roadmap of Jody's movements prior to, at the time of, and after Travis was murdered. So there was a receipt for the rental car that Jody got 
at the Reading Airport. And the prosecutor, Juan Martinez, was really quick to point out that there were at least two rental car agencies in Wairika where Jody was living at the time. So why would Jody have gone to Reading, which was 90 miles away, to rent a car? The detective that testified said, you know, based on his experience in the summertime, which is when this was, it would have taken about an hour and a half to drive from Wairika to Reading. It didn't make a lot of sense in the prosecutor's mind when there were other rental car agencies nearer to where she was living at the time. Jody would later claim that she did this because they had, I think she said something about more selection of cars and that she was already planning to go south anyways. So it just made sense to drive her car to Reading, leave it there and get this rental car because her car was not doing well or whatever she said. The prosecutor walked through the rest of the receipts, which are the gas receipts that we talked about some bank receipts and a Walmart receipt. And his main focus with going through all these receipts was looking at the timestamps and the date stamps on the receipt. He argued to the jury that each of these receipts was a marker showing that Jody was on her way to kill Travis at this point. If we go back to kind of what Amanda talked about with the gas cans, I think you were completely on point that she already knew she was going to have at least one receipt somewhere along her trip of getting gas, but she needed to have it at the quote unquote right place, the right gas station. And so borrowing those gas cans and getting gas that way instead of actually going to another physical gas station where there might be surveillance, there would be a receipt, there would be some kind of evidence that she was there. And if she's not in the quote unquote right place, that obviously looks sus. Yeah. If she was in Arizona instead of on her way to Utah on the wrong day, then they would know. Right. And so I think she was at least thinking that far ahead where she's very calculated in her movements and where she's kind of leaving her little paper trail. It's okay to leave them in certain spots if it's kind of, I can play it off and tell a story about why I went here. But for certain things like stopping at a gas station in Arizona or stopping in someplace that wouldn't be on the route she claimed she was going to take makes her look guilty. So the last witness that the prosecution called in their case in chief was a former friend of Jody's named Leslie, I think it's UD. She worked with Jody at PPL. And after Travis was murdered, Jody called her, called Leslie at least twice. She called her the day after Travis was murdered. She spent about an hour on the phone with her, telling her that she wasn't with Travis anymore, but they'd always be best friends. And then Jody called her again after Jody, quote unquote, found out Travis was dead. And that's when she tells Leslie she just lost her best friend and she didn't know what to do. She didn't really talk about kind of how Jody sounded, but I imagine based on kind of what we talk about later and how manipulative she is, she probably tried to sound as sad and upset and convincing as she needed to be. Now, did she call about Travis's murder or Travis, sorry, Travis's death when she should have? Uh, or did she accidentally make that phone call before she should have known? Yeah. So she made that call at an appropriate time. This It was basically like right after she had actually been told by his friends that he was dead. I mean, obviously she knew already, but right. it was like right after 
she had found out from his friends. That was like the next call she made after she got off the phone with Travis's friends. Because sometimes, you know, they screw up because they make that call too soon. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So she does testify that, you know, at least two calls, maybe more that they had. Jody never said anything about killing Travis. She, as far as I can remember, she never said anything about seeing Travis around that time. So nothing that would be implicating her essentially in the murder. So the prosecution rested on January 16th. It was really weird because the trial was then kind of put on this hold. It was like a 10-day hiatus. And essentially, there was a lot of argument about the media's involvement in the case. And so there's several times throughout kind of what I'm going to talk about where the media's role is brought up and kind of how to treat the media. And so during this kind of 10-day hiatus, the attorneys are essentially kind of arguing in front of the judge, like, are we going to keep live streaming this? Is the media still going to have kind of this unfettered access to the trial? Where are we going to kind of go from here? Like I mentioned at the time, you know, the trial was being live streamed every day. There were people waiting in line to get a seat into kind of the gallery of actually like being able to watch the trial physically in person. And there was, I mean, there was a line like around the courthouse to get in to see the trial. So it was a big deal. It was part of this 24-hour news cycle where, you know, we watched the trial all day. And then afterwards, we talked to the Nancy Graces and people like that and have them break down, you know, what's going on in the trial. So the trial resumes on February 4th. And that is the day that the fabulous Miss Jody Arias takes the stand. One article I read said that this was an unexpected decision on the part of her attorneys. But I feel like I have to disagree with that a lot. <laughs> I think it was always the defense's plan to call Jody to the stand. One reason I say that is just the nature of the self-defense argument. If you have somebody who dies, quote unquote, in self-defense, that person obviously can't tell you what happened leading up to it, can't tell you what happened you know, during all that kind of stuff. And so you really are only stuck with the other person that's claiming self-defense. You know, in this case, there's no independent evidence that's kind of showing Travis is an abusive man with a temper. So Jody herself and her testimony is what's going to make their case for self-defense. They don't really have anything otherwise without her testimony. I think Jody's plan was always to be on the stand. To be the center of attention. Look at me, look at me, I'm Jody. Oh, yeah, that totally fits with her personality. So, like I said, I watched several hours of her testimony. I didn't watch all 18 days because after I got a feel for, you know, several hours worth, it was clear that it was just going to be a lot of the same thing over and over. It just, it became really repetitive at some point, And the courtroom shenanigans were really just, as an attorney, embarrassing to watch. It was definitely a circus show. And I, I've read that in so many places that it was just a little bit ridiculous. And I think that that has been said before when court TV has kind of been brought into a trial or you know, media in general has been so involved with a trial. A lot of the same things have been said about OJ Simpson's trial and the media involvement there. And so I think a lot of the same things happen. There's a lot of 
pandering to the cameras and almost acting in some ways. But this definitely should have been reined in from the beginning, and it really wasn't. So because it's the defense's case, her attorneys obviously got first crack at her. I think it was like the first or second question was, did you kill Travis Alexander? And Jody admitted that, yes, she did. And I think, again, this was, it probably shouldn't have been, but I think it was still just very illuminating to some people that just weren't necessarily maybe accepting that or, you know, couldn't believe that she was actually going to admit to it. Then she went into her story of, you know, Travis had attacked her and she had to defend herself. And then there was a great deal of testimony that I didn't listen to because I didn't care (laughs) about her childhood and her prior relationships. I think Amanda has done a wonderful job laying out Jody's side of the story. And I don't feel like I need to comment because it's there if you want to watch it and you feel very concerned for Jody's upbringing and how that played a role in who she is today. We're all Winston survivors. <laughs> and we don't murder. Truly. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez. Um, so I think the, the only thing that I will kind of note about that upbringing childhood testimony was that there was really an emphasis on the way Jody's dad treated her mom and sort of the quote unquote degrading things that he would say to her or the way he treated her in kind of a degrading manner. That was something that they really focused on. And I think they were kind of trying to plant the seeds of Jody saw this behavior growing up and that she mirrored that as an adult. And that's why she was in such shitty relationships. Take that for what it's worth. That just, you know, I do agree with that to some extent. That's partly why the abuse cycle continues with generations afterward. You know, you you often mirror what you see. But 100%. But my only problem with that is did this actually happen? And can we believe what she's saying? That's my biggest problem is I don't have an ability to trust what she's saying. And so I have a hard time buying in to the things, you know, she's trying to assert. Oh, I'm not buying what Jody's selling. For real. (laughs) Somebody else, I'd be like, I can see that. Yep. Absolutely. So as I think we can all remember and imagine, the real nitty gritty of the defense's case was sex and the sexual nature of Travis and Jody's relationship. That was really something they leaned heavily into. I'm sure part of it was, you know, just kind of trying to acknowledge it and get out in front of it almost. But like I said before, at some point, it's enough is enough. (laughs) So one of the things Jody had mentioned a couple times in her direct testimony was how she was uncomfortable the first time she was intimate with Travis. And her attorney asked her, you know, did you tell Travis about these feelings? And she says, no, you know, she has a hard time saying no to people. And then she claimed to be embarrassed about some of the details of their sexual relationship. Like on the stand, she was like very timid and, you know, oh, I can't talk about sex. That's not, oh, it's taboo. And this is so embarrassing to talk about. And she would like put her head down and feign embarrassment, which again, I found to be hilarious because that was literally all she talked about for the 18 days she was on the stand. Is sex and her sex life with Travis and and, and cue the recording she made of them having phone sex. And I, plus, 
she made it. That's a very good point. She made that recording. If Travis was the obsessed, sex obsessed one, which kind of, but in this instance, we're talking about her, he would have made that recording. He would have, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's just mm-hmm. not playing. Exactly. And so, again, still not buying what she's selling. <laughs> exactly. She, of course, denied breaking into her grandparents' home, denied knowing about it, having somebody else do it for her, all of the things. Has no idea about that break-in whatsoever. She also kind of came off like dumb too, like, oh, I never like made the connection about like the break-in at their house and like the gun and the murder. It's the most logical, easy connection to make. Of course not. I mean, they didn't take any of my stuff, so I didn't think about it. So she also talked about, you know, the road trip that she was going on and to see Ryan Burns in Utah. And she said, you know, at some point, Travis basically begged her to come see him. She always did whatever Travis wanted. So she makes this stop on her trip. She goes to Mesa. The two have sex. When they're done having sex, Jody says she was trying to show Travis some pictures that she'd saved for him. They were on a CD. I'm sure you all remember saving your photos to a CD back in the day. If you don't remember, boo you. You're too young to be listening to this show. (laughs) Exactly. I think they're coming back, though. So everybody should know what a CD is. The Y2K thing is very much a trend. So we used to see photos on it, guys. And music. And music. Exactly. So since you guys remember and you know about CDs, you will probably also remember that if you didn't put them into a nice case or a nice cover, they would get scratched. And sometimes that scratching led to an inability to listen to your music or look at your photos. Mm -hmm. So basically, this is what Jody says happened. She had these CDs, but I guess they were just kind of like floating around in her car for a while. And so they ended up getting scratched. So he couldn't open the, the photos. And so he got really pissed about this. And he grabbed her by the arm, spun her around, twisted her right arm behind her back. And then, according to Jody, he bent her over his desk and had sex with her. Again, according to Jody, she was relieved about this whole sexual encounter because sex was a de-stressor for him. And so Jody thought this would calm him down and he would be happy again. I'm so glad my boyfriend (laughs) just raped me because now he will be stressed. That just doesn't make any sense. Like, I see what she was going for there, but she missed it. Yeah. So... She talks several times and, you know, this is something that her attorney focuses on is kind of, well, why did you want to make him happy, essentially? Because, you know, we're they're trying to paint the picture that he has this temper. He gets really mad, you know, kind of zero to 60 mad. So she says several times that she was just trying to get through the trip to make some happy memories. And she was doing everything possible to avoid Travis being mad and starting some kind of fight. And then, of course, she... I have a hard time with this because I think, you know, I, I've been guilty in the past of this kind of taking and shouldering the blame for something and talking about how, you know, I did something bad to kind of instigate the situ- situation. I think we're all probably guilty of that on some level, but we're not all on trial for murder, first of all. Second of all, I think she really just came across as, again, pandering 
to the jury like I'm always making him mad. I always do the wrong thing. And I was just trying not to make him mad and trying not to start a fight and just very like self-blaming. But like you can kind of see right through it. Like it's very fake. I just don't understand why if he allegedly treated her this way, why do you still go and mess with him or have anything to do with him? Yeah. And I think when you brought that up earlier, I was thinking about it a little bit and I talked about it a little bit later. But one of the things I think is really interesting is that when we kind of talk about a typical abuse cycle, the victim in that scenario like doesn't have the chance to be away or get away. And I think in her case, you talked about several times that they had broken up. They were seeing other people. They were doing their own thing. She actually was away from him. And like had her own, like, I mean, she's dating this new guy, Ryan Burns or whatever, you know, moving on. He's moving on. She allowed herself to be like sucked back into that because she wanted to, you know, it was, I don't, I don't feel like it's the typical abuse cycle that we see so often. Yeah. Cause I mean, most women, I don't know because I've never been in an abusive relationship. I feel like once they are away, like she was in another state living with her grandparents. So there's no reason for her to go back, let alone when she's on her way to see somebody else, this new boyfriend. Like it doesn't make sense in my head, which is why I don't think these abuse allegations are even remotely true. Yeah, I I think that's a good point to talk about her being in a completely different state because at that point, like the ties are severed. You know, you're in a complete, I mean, what is it like two or three states away? Oh, yeah, at least. Yeah. I mean, you, you might as well be on the other side of the country. You know, you're removed from that person, you're removed from their life. It takes actual effort to like bring that back in. It's not, oh, you know, I still live with them, so I can't leave. Like I'm financially dependent on them. Like that was never really the case between them. No. And even the verbiage, like the the words that Travis used in the email and, you know, in, in the chat wasn't, you get your ass back here and you get back in this house and do what you're supposed to do for me. You know, it was, why can't you just tell me the truth about what's going on? Why can't you just tell me the truth about anything? So I feel as though if Travis were that kind of a person, first of all, there'd be a pattern, you know, and also he would have used different terms. He would have had a different control on her. It's just not reading. Yeah. It just is weird to me. Like if that were really happening, I feel like he would there would be physical threats of harm and things like that, that you're not seeing. And I'm sure she would have told you if that were to happen. Well, and also what's interesting in that, in that chat was the fact that she was the one who said, I'll just kill myself. Then I'm going to play the victim now, not I'm going to fucking kill you. If you ever do that again, you bitch, like, right. That's normally kind of what we hear and see. Like, if you don't come back to Mesa, I'm going to find you. Exactly. I know where your grandparents live. I know where you're at. Exactly. Instead, it's, you stay there. In fact, please leave me alone. (laughs) Exactly. And I think, too, it's as terrible as this is and as terrible as it is to say these things about women. Men call women sluts and whores all the time. Again, I don't think that should happen. I think that's terrible. Shouldn't do it. But that alone 
is not abusive behavior. Women call each other sluts and whores all the time. Yes. Yes. And also like, like we're saying, if you're in a fight, it doesn't excuse the behavior, but you're going to do shitty things. Sometimes you do and say shitty things. Also, you can call people those things in the middle of a sexting situation. Context. You're absolutely right. Because sometimes if you're in the heat, you'd be like, yeah, I am your little whore daddy or whatever. And you read that. what your thing is. Right. And that could be part of your foreplay, which is totally fine and natural. That is totally okay. You're consenting adults. So, and in this case, if all you have are text messages and emails and chats, those are just words on a paper. You have no idea, especially with Travis being dead, you have no idea what his intent or his meaning behind those words were. You can infer as we all can, but unless he's telling you those things, that's all you're going to be able to do is to infer. And if you don't have the beginning of the beginning from the end of the conversation, or even six conversations ago, you don't really know what's going on. So this is the big part of her testimony. So they've gotten into this quote unquote argument about the CDs. He assent- she never says rapes and they kind of dance around that and are almost a little bit careful not to say rape because she does kind of say that she was okay with it to some extent. So they definitely don't use the R word. But so after this whole thing, she says they go back upstairs. They're going to take more pictures. She tells the jury that Travis had been working on getting in shape for his Cancun trip and he wanted to document his progress and she wanted to do something nice for him. You know, she's this professional photographer. So she offers to take these pictures for him. He's got this brand new digital camera, which I'm sure back in the day, you guys all remember how exciting it was to have your first digital camera. I mean, I was probably a little older than you, but yeah. It was a big deal. You actually had to bring them out on like nights out too. Like you had to have a wristlet because otherwise you'd get lost or broken or stolen. You had to have your phone and a camera. And a camera. It wasn't like together. (laughs) So when camera phones happened, it was like, (gasps) what? Oh my gosh. Life changing. Yeah. Well, um, I wish that you would have spoken to Travis and Jody about getting a wristlet because apparently that didn't happen because Butterfingers Jody, which is an excellent name for her, by the way, claims that she dropped Travis's brand new camera and he started freaking out, which I mean, to some extent, like, yes, I can see this. You just dropped my brand new camera. I'm going to be upset, but am I going to threaten to kill you? No, I don't think so. I wonder if Sally calls her Butterfingers Jody. <laughs> I hope so. Actually, we know that her and her Sellies, Sally and the girlfriend, definitely had lots of interactions. And maybe that was a nickname. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You so, watched that on, what was it, Reels? Oh, God. It was Women Behind... No, it wasn't Women Behind Bars. It was... Cellmate Secrets? Cellmate Secrets. It's they all have a relationship until Jody married the other two. Yes, that was so insane. I was like, I will say though, big ups to them because they can say Jody Arias married us and tattooed them and tattooed them 
incredible. She tattooed her own name on one of them. So, like I said, she drops this camera and it escalates to the point where he threatens to kill her, which, again, I think is a little bit out there. But anyways, so after this, Travis chases her out of the bathroom. She runs into his closet and she says that she grabs Travis's gun off of a top shelf in his closet. She actually points to it for the jury based on a photo they took of the closet. And she claimed that she had found that gun while she was cleaning one day because I'm sure you guys probably came across this, but she was Travis's maid on occasion and would clean for him. But so after she gets the gun, he chases her back into the bathroom. And just to be clear, this is the bathroom connected to his room because they, they do make a reference to, I believe there's three bathrooms in the house. And this is the one upstairs connected to Travis's bedroom. So they're in the bathroom. Jody points the gun at Travis. And then she says he runs at her like a linebacker and grabbed her at the waist. She tells the jury that the gun went off and she had no idea that she shot him. She then tells the jury there are gaps in her memory from the day of the murder. So after the gun goes off, she claims her next clear memory is driving in the desert. I mean, has she watched the play Chicago one too many times? You know what I'm saying? We both reach for the gun. Like, really, this is just come on, girl. Also, they just presented evidence that completely destroys that timeline. Has she not ever watched an episode of Snapped? It gets better. She so, of course, she has these memory gaps. So she has no memory of stabbing Travis in the back, the chest, cutting his throat. None of that. She has no memory of dragging him across the floor, even though we've seen pictures of her in the process of doing this. And she has no memory of placing Travis in the shower. She claimed she had a vague memory of putting the knife in the dishwasher. And when she's asked about this, she says she assumed it's the one that they had already had upstairs from when Travis had cut rope they used to tie her up before they had sex. So that's where she thinks the knife came from and why it would be upstairs. I mean, most people already have that shit prepared before you do it. Yeah. And you don't use rope from like Home Depot. I mean, ideally not, unless that's your thing. So she actually did testify about this. It was like rope you would use to tie your curtains. So it's like the silky, like soft rope is what she called it. Oh, and that's what he had. Okay. So they're kind of like fashioning handcuffs, essentially kind of thing out of household materials. They're DIY. They're the Chip and Joanna games of (laughs) kinky sex. Of sex. So one of the things that this annoying ass bitch kept saying during direct examination was that she couldn't take anything back and she couldn't rewind the clock. What a smack in the face to his family. Yeah, I was not here for it. No. (laughs) So again, going back to kind of what we talked about at the very beginning, when the prosecutions laying out their case, they talked about kind of the way the events happened through the medical examiner's testimony. So Jody says she didn't remember taking the gun with her, but she did remember throwing it away in the desert somewhere. I didn't even know that. I just guessed. I want <laughs> that. 
Dude, watch. It's like by Israel Keys is one of his murder buckets. Watch. And again, she claims to have no memory of where she was driving after the murder. She was just driving at that point. But yet she managed to make it to Ryan in Utah. It's like out of body experience. Then I have this in my notes because I was getting real feisty at this point with my script. Criminal mastermind decided that she would call Travis's phone and she would leave a voicemail to throw off the scent for a little while because she knew Travis's voicemails would be listened to at some point. But she doesn't stop there. This dumbass proceeds to tell the jury that she recorded and deleted a bunch of voicemails because they didn't sound right because she was either crying or she was talking too fast. Oh, so she like would record and it would say, do you want to send your voicemail? And she would go, no, delete and try it again. Yeah. So she would record it. They would say, do you want to play back your message? And she listens to it. And she's like, nah, that doesn't sound right. She would delete it and she would try again. <laughs> so she, oh my God. She just like, admitted. She just admitted it. She just admitted that she's trying to leave a voicemail to throw people off her tracks on the stand yeah she's like no this one isn't breezy enough delete she's like no this one's too too chill. i need to sound like I need to happy sound and sad. <laughs> so yeah i just want to say i'm not normally so critical of defendants but this bitch just hella got on my nerves and watching her bullshit for hours on end just got to me but I have saved one of the best things for last on her direct anyway. One of the stupidest things that Jody said during her direct came when her attorney asked whether she had any injuries from the day of the murder. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm in a fight for my life, I'm going to be throwing up hands. I'm going to be throwing up like my legs. I'm going to be just like, fucking karate chopping people I, i'm gonna be doing everything i possibly can to save my life and if there's like a knife involved i'm probably expecting like i'm gonna have cuts on my hands from like trying to fight over the knife if i come out of this with just cuts on my hands but i'm still alive i can take the cuts on my hands you know but if i'm in a situation fighting for my life i expect that i'm gonna have some kind of mark on my body this stupid fuck said she had scrapes on her ankles. <laughs> How do you get scrapes on your ankles? Are you getting like hit on your ankles by a razor scooter? Like what the fuck are you doing? No, it's from the rope. <laughs> <laughs> so this is where I straight lost it because Travis is sitting here having been stabbed 27 times in his chest and his back. His throat has been slit nearly to the point of decapitation. And he has a gunshot wound to the head. And all you have is scrapes on your fucking ankles. Setting aside any kind of domestic violence allegations, if you're just looking at a pure self-defense, like you had to kill this person in order That's to defend not, yourself. Mm -mm. He didn't even break your ankle. Like, did you scrape it, shaving your legs? Thank you. <laughs> It's just, it's mind boggling. 
I really feel for the defense attorneys in this case, to be honest, because she already done fucked up quite a bit before the case even started giving like interviews to the news. No big deal. You know, her mugshot, she's like super smiley and shit. And you're like, oh, my God. No wonder he hated her. I hate her. And I'm not even. Oh, my God. Like, how could you not hate her? Beyond that bullshit about the scrapes on her ankles, I don't want to talk about this next piece of testimony lightly because I do recognize that there are a lot of domestic violence victims that don't report their abusers to family, to friends, to police. But I want to be clear that this statement is not for those victims. Those victims should always be believed. The fact that Jody testified that she never told anyone about the sexual nature of her relationship with Travis or the alleged abuse in her relationship with Travis stands out to me because she only made these allegations after she had been claiming self-defense. To me, it's just a gross assassination of Travis's character. And again, you know, he's not perfect, but she's literally just trying to score sympathy points with the jury. And I think taken as a whole with some of the other behaviors she made during trial, like her incessant crying, hiding behind her hair, looking down, looking ashamed. This whole thing just reeks of manipulation. I think that when somebody is in a domestic violence situation, even if they don't tell someone, I think someone always at least has a suspicion, a family member, a close friend. And in this situation, there was not that at all. You know what I mean? I think, Jesse, you had said earlier that this is kind of who the person is. So there's a pattern Mm -hmm. of that behavior. So that's why the prosecution put on so many of, you know, his exes or his friends or things like that to say, no, there was never any evidence of this. He never treated me like that. You know, he was very respectful, all these things. Somebody that's an abuser is going to be habitual about it. It's not just going to be this one girlfriend that they're with this one time because that is who they are. Yes. You know, it is something like you were talking about, Amanda, where it would bleed into people's lives enough that somebody would question is, you know, this going on behind the scenes. There's going to be someone that sees a bruise or they're going to see the personality changes that happen with emotional abuse. So I just think that there's not the other things that would back up those claims with her. Totally agree. And then with them meeting at Chris and Sky Hughes's house in the middle between their two, before she moved a mile away from his house in Mesa, they would have seen something. They would have said something. I really do believe that because if Sky was even willing to talk to Jody like as a girlfriend and say, hey, girl, he's treating you like shit. Yeah, let, let me talk to him. He's being a dick, essentially. Had she shown her a bruise? That would have been a different conversation, I'm sure. And the other thing is, is Jody, by her taking on this defense, is really doing a disservice to the actual domestic violence victims out there. And it's gross. And that's why I wanted to put that caveat on what I was saying, because it's absolutely not for actual victims. I understand why you wouldn't tell somebody and why you wouldn't report it. But in this case, it's just another tactic and a ploy to garner sympathy with the jury. As you guys mentioned earlier, they played the hour-long sex clip for the jury. I don't know why the judge allowed this. I don't think that you needed to play the entire hour. 
we already talked about kind of the text messages and the emails that were presented. You know, Travis did say things as we talked about that weren't the best. I think what we talked about earlier, him trying, getting fed up with her and trying to get rid of her going to have a lot of things you say that aren't kind and maybe you don't necessarily mean, but you really are just sick and tired of this person. And so you say these terrible things, but I don't think we have threats to kill her. And he may have said, you know, she's too impure for me to marry. Like that really pissed me off. I'm not going to lie. Like I wanted to kill him, but not actually kill him because murder is never the answer. I just wanted to kill him in my mind because that's a really dick thing to say. But if you look at the entire picture, that may have been a dick thing to say in order for her to finally get her to move on, you know? Okay, maybe if I'm like this complete fucking asshole to her, she will take the hint and move the fuck on. But when, like I said before, you start fucking with people before you know they're crazy, then you're stuck with your crazy consequences. And when you're a dick to somebody who's crazy, this is what happens. When it came time for cross-examination, Juan Martinez, the prosecutor, was absolutely ready to annihilate Jody. I mean, it is like a dream come true for a prosecutor when a defendant agrees to testify because it happens so infrequently. I watched a fair amount of the cross-examination, but I stopped watching only because I got so tired of, I shit you not, it was almost like after every regular question, there was a follow-up question about whether or not Jody had memory problems because she would say she didn't recall or she didn't remember. And so right after she said either of those two buzzwords, he was on her. Oh, Miss, Miss Arias, do you have problems with your memory? Are you having problems remembering what I just said to you? And it was unreal. To me, the way that these theatrics went on, I mean, at some point, Jody was smirking and she was almost laughing at Juan Martinez at some point. It was just disrespectful of the court process, the prosecutor, the judge, the jury, and most importantly, Travis's family, who, like I said, was sitting there every single day. And she's accused of murdering him in cold blood. So he, of course, brought up the infamous doggy door incident. His whole goal was to, one, convince everyone that Jody was a liar, which I think everybody had accepted that. At some point, you have to say, well, can I believe, like, what that she's saying, can I believe? If she's lied about this and she's lied about that, this, that, and the other, when is she telling the truth? I think that's an important thing to remember because if you're claiming self defense and your only evidence is your own story, you haven't really done a good job of painting yourself as a credible witness if there's countless times when the prosecutor can point out where you lied about important things. He also talked to her about the different stories she told about her bent finger, which I don't know if you guys have seen it. She like shows it to the camera. Like, oh. I that. It's ridiculous because she does this whole like hand thing. I tried oh my to do it myself. She's like, she's like the bent neck lady, but for hands. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Come on. Okay. But his whole point was she's told you know, at least three different stories about how that injury happened too. She said that 
a woman did it to her in some kind of altercation that they had. And then she says she cut it at work. And so all of these things are just going to further minimize her credibility. And what can we believe that she's saying? Because she lies about everything. So he continually berated her and he hounded her about her memory problems. He was quick to point out that there's no medical reports, there's no police records, there's no photos of any injuries, like there's no paper trail, for lack of a better term, of domestic violence. This does happen frequently in domestic violence cases, but even in domestic violence cases, there are times when the person does seek medical treatment and to protect themselves, they come up with, oh, I ran into the doorknob. And oh, I, story. I slipped and fell. So they do still seek medical treatment because it's significant enough that they do need help. But they're very careful to say, oh, I did this to myself. This was an accident, you know, not putting the blame on somebody else. There were definitely some times that she got more combative and agitated. She started out smirking and nearly laughing whenever she would be asked a question by the prosecutor. But by the end of her cross with him, she definitely appeared to be kind of defeated and exhausted. After she testified, they still had two really important witnesses that they wanted to bring up. And that was a psychologist and a domestic violence expert. So the psychologist said that he evaluated Jody and he diagnosed her with PTSD and amnesia that she got as a result from killing Travis. <laughs> Amanda's head's in her hands at this point. <laughs> I mean, it can happen, right? I mean, like think about like soldiers or anybody who's gone through extreme abuse. Yes, it can happen. My question you have more to go is the abuse first. Right. But also, where did they get this guy? So that was the biggest thing that the prosecutor focused on was that when Dr. Samuels diagnosed Jody with PTSD, this was when she was still spewing her lies about the intruder break-in story. So, so he, he interviewed her with the OG story too, under that context. So technically, oh my God. Yeah. So the prosecutor got him to admit that he should have reevaluated her when the truth, I'm putting that in quotes, came out. He really focused on debunking him. And I think he did a good job at that. One of the things he also brought up was he implied, well, not even implied, he questioned Dr. Samuels about a possible inappropriate relationship between him and Jody. And he actually accused the doctor of having feelings for Jody. Of course, the doctor denied this, but he put it out there. Miss La Violette was the next to take the stand. She's the domestic violence expert. She told the jury all about some incidents that Jody had told her had happened. She interviews Jody after hearing these stories. She's confident that Jody was a lying. <laughs> Not quite. She's convinced that Jody is a battered woman. Prosecutor Martinez is quick to point out, as he's done the entire trial, the only evidence of this alleged abuse by Travis are Jody's claims of the abuse. Martinez is going to later be criticized for being too aggressive and hostile in his questioning of Miss La Violette. This would be the first of many casualties of the Arius trial. Miss La Violette was not well received in the community and people left negative reviews about her book, calling her a fraud and disgrace. And she was pulled from numerous speaking events. 
she had to go to the emergency room because she was having anxiety attacks and heart palpitations because she testified. Mm, you know, I bet I, it's her PSD from testifying. <laughs> no shit. <laughs> Thanks for joining us today. You can find us on SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google, Amazon, or wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, we'll see you next Tuesday.